Hello, hello. How's it going? Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well this morning. I hope whoever is uh, so sad back there feels better. <laughs> um, like Zach said, this morning, my name is Tim, and I'm one of uh, the ministers here. I'm the worship minister here, which just means that I am uh, the best singer of the five of us. That's all that really means. I'm not the loudest singer of the five of us. There's someone else who's that, but, uh, but at least I'm the best. So, <laughs> it's, it's clicking. Uh, like Wade read, we're gonna be continuing our walk through 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, and as we, uh, as we open up 1 Corinthians chapter three, so if you haven't already, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bible or get it in your app and go ahead and turn there. And while you do that, I'm gonna talk to you about how cool I was in high school because that's awesome. And I think we even have a picture uh, that we can put on the screen. Yes, okay. So just, just wait, okay. That's me in front of my first car, uh, the car, the pose. Everything, it's great. Now, uh, first, let's just uh, zoom in on my face. Oh yeah, that's what, you're, that's what we want. So yeah, look at that kid, look at the hair. The, somehow my cheeks are wider than my, my head. I don't know how that works out. And that kid thinks that he is awesome, okay? Kelsey, my, my wife, she knew me in high school and she saw that hair and that face and that car and she said, let's just be friends. And so then I cut my hair and I grew a beard and we got married, okay? So I'll never, uh, I'll never shave this off, ever. Uh, but yeah, you can go back to the big picture. Me in front of my car, there you go. That's my first car uh, and it's a 1969 Chevy Chevelle Malibu in Chevy Fathom Blue, okay? And I purchased it for about $1,500, uh, painstakingly restored it and made it into an incredibly fast car that made local law enforcement a lot of money, okay? I paid for a lot, of, a lot of bills in that department. I did all sorts of stuff to the car. I worked really hard to make it really fast because to me, it was sort of this extension of my identity. I wanted my car to be as awesome as it could be, as fast, as loud, all of these things that it could be so that when I pulled up to the parking lot, so I just like drove up. I didn't even have to step out of the car. As soon as I got out of the car, people would say, I already know that guy's awesome. And I would never be sad again. That was my plan, okay? So I put a ton of work, a ton of investment. All of these things did a ton of work on the engine, rebuilt the transmission, added a fuel injection system that was crazy, all of this stuff just to make this car awesome. And it was awesome. You heard me coming down the road from miles away because it was extremely loud. It was fast and without going into too many details, it was illegally fast. And so it was cool, okay? I was a cool guy. Now. One thing, is that still other, you know, yeah, we're good, we're good. That's, that's enough of that. So one thing you have to understand about cars, okay? One very important thing that you need to know about cars, in order for a car to run properly, it has to have oil in the engine, okay? But not just any old oil, you know? It's not good enough just to have oil in there, but regularly maintained, changed out oil. Every three to 5,000 miles, that little sticker they put up in there, it's, it's so that you know that you need to be changing that oil regularly or things will go wrong. Despite all my knowledge about making cars fast and making them super cool and super loud, I had all of these skills. I was able to restore the interior, all this cool knowledge. What I didn't know was that my oil needed to be changed. I didn't know that at all. No one ever taught me that. I knew that the car had to have oil, and I looked, and there it is, it's in there. 
but I had no idea that it needed to be regularly changed. And so after I'd been driving the car for about nine months, some strange things started happening. I started to hear some interesting noises, like my engine crying out to me in pain. And I had no idea what was wrong. I was like taking parts, you know, and looking at them, what's, what's happening? I looked inside, there's still oil in it, so it must still be working. Took it to my friends, and they're at, I'm like, hey, can y'all tell me what's wrong? Listen to the sound. What is wrong with my car? And they're like, how's your oil? And I'm like, in there. And they're like, hey, yeah, but how is it? I'm like, the car's fast, it's awesome, I'm awesome, therefore everything's good. The oil must be good. And so I didn't know that everything was not good until one morning I was driving to school and my engine and transmission simultaneously exploded. Just blew up. And that was, that was, that car was just, uh, it was the end of that car. <laughs> Which was very sad. And so for me, the problem was that I didn't know these basics, these fundamental basics about how a car worked and that's how I learned. And now I definitely know you should change your oil every 3,000 to 5,000 miles. But at the time, though I knew all of these advanced skills about making engines cool and fast and all this stuff, I, didn't, I had neglected the basics. I had forgotten the basics. Change your oil. And it's something I'll never forget. And my wallet, uh, it, was, it was a sad day for me as a high school student. So Paul in our text this morning, he's going to point out that the Corinthians are doing something very similar. The Corinthians are thinking that they're really awesome. But instead of a 1969 Chevelle Malibu, they have what they call wisdom. They have all of this wisdom and they're putting all of their effort, they're putting all of their attention into building up their wisdom. They're they're exercising sort of these long, eloquent, poetic speeches to demonstrate how smart they are. And they have these visions and these prophecies and they're going around speaking in tongues. All of these things that they've sort of added to themselves to make people look at them and say, wow, those guys are awesome. Those guys are incredible. They're so enlightened. They're so mature in the faith to have all of this wisdom. That's crazy. I hope that doesn't keep happening. I don't know how to fix it. You never know. I'm not back there to help. (laughs) It's going to be wheels off today. (laughs) So they have all of these things that they poured their effort into to make other people think that they're mature, and yet they are severely lacking. Though they've added all these things to their Christian living, there are a bunch of divisions in the church. They're going to temple prostitutes. They're getting drunk off the communion wine, among other things, because they're so wrapped up in impressing one another and being awesome in the world's eyes, they've actually neglected the basics, the foundation of the faith. And as a result, whether they realize it or not, their Christian life is remarkably malnourished and it's starting to show. So with that in mind, let's pray and let's get into our text this morning. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you are indeed good. And I uh, pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you would help remove distractions. Lord, that you would, uh, there would be no sort of weird technical difficulties that are distracting, but instead that we would rejoice in the gift of your word, uh, that by your word you would uh, change us, you would transform us, that you would renew us, you would convict us. And Lord, that ultimately we would, we would seek to honor you and obey your commands in all things. We need your grace. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, 
We're obviously coming into this mid-thought. Okay, Paul says, but I, brothers. And this could also be translated as, and I, brothers. But either way, he's building off of what he said in the previous verses. But I like that the ESV translates this as, but I, brothers, because though it could be translated as, and I, brothers, that would just make it sound like Paul's just adding another point. He's just saying, oh yeah, and here's another thought that I had. Here's another thing. But specifically here at the beginning of chapter three, Paul is actually changing the way he's speaking to the Corinthians. Everything sort of takes a dramatic turn here. And so I can illustrate it this way. If I said that in that winter storm we had a couple of weeks ago, our, the church's plumbing didn't really freeze. We didn't have a massive flood. Our sanctuary was largely unaffected. And the ceiling in one of the offices caved in. One of those, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. Those first three sounded really nice. That sounded great, like a great list of things that had gone right. But that last one didn't match. The ceiling caved in. That, that was somewhat different from the rest of those. And so instead, I would say, yeah, during the winter storm, the plumbing didn't freeze. You know, our building didn't flood. The sanctuary uh, is largely unaffected. But, but the ceiling in one of the offices caved in. And that's an issue. And so saying but rather than and sort of communicates that this conversation here has taken a turn, which is exactly what Paul is intending here. Because where he's, he's been speaking somewhat generically about the difference between unbelievers and believers and those who are natural or of the flesh and those who are spiritual. Now he's turning away from these sort of generic categories in order to specifically rebuke the Corinthians who are supposed to be so spiritual, but Paul's gonna rebuke them for their excessive worldliness. So before we get into that though, I need to draw our attention to the word brothers here. Notice that he says, but I brothers. And a couple of things I need to say here. First off, just so you're aware, he's talking to sisters as well, okay? He's not exclusively talking to men. He's not excluding half of his congregation, as some people like to say. In Greek grammar, as well as a lot of languages, when addressing a crowd, you just default to the grammatical masculine. Oh, that sounds terrible. Hold on, just, just stick with me, okay? In the Old Testament, for example, when you're reading the Ten Commandments, Every time it says, you shall not, you shall not, that you is in the masculine. So it would be right to read the, old, the, the Ten Commandments as, you men shall not murder. You men shall have no other gods before me. That's why it says things like, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. It never says that you shouldn't covet your neighbor's husband. So ladies, have a blast, <laughs> right? But no, that's not, that's not how it works. That's just how the biblical languages and most ancient languages and still languages today address a crowd, regardless of how many men or women are there. So in, in Greek, this just says brothers. But the translations that say brothers and sisters, those are absolutely spot on. That's right. Though in the Greek, it just says brothers. What Paul is doing here is he's speaking to both the men and women of the church in Corinth. He's speaking to the entire church. Now, the second thing we need to notice about this word, brothers, is that Paul is very intentionally drawing the Corinthians' attention to their identity as Christians, or at the very least, as supposed Christians. That's who they say they are. So unfortunately, the Corinthians have created among themselves this culture that is nurturing sin rather than holiness. And so Paul has to call them out this morning. In fact, the rest of the, the letter to the Corinthians is simply gonna be Paul laying out what the Corinthians are doing wrong, 
all these ways that they're nurturing sin and how they ought to act instead if they truly are the people of God. So just get excited for 13 chapters of this. (laughs) And so with that in mind, he begins his rebuke by calling them brothers, which is a word that Paul almost exclusively uses to refer to believers, to Christians. And I think he's doing this to draw their attention to a few things. He's trying to sort of prepare their hearts to receive his rebuke by calling them brothers. And first, I think it's just softening the blow of the rebuke. Paul's reassuring them of his love for them before correcting them. He's not correcting them just for the sport. He's not just being a mean guy. He's warning them out of love because he's, they're his brothers. So for instance, my two-year-old daughter, she's very cute. She's back there. She's so cute. She's wearing a cute little dress today. I love her so much. Uh, Hallie, whenever we correct her or have to say anything sternly to her to get her to stop doing something wrong, she just breaks down crying. Something is, I go, hey, stop doing that. She'll go, ooh, she'll just start crying. I mean, that's all we have to say. And a lot of times what she'll immediately say is, I love you. <laughs> like our relationship's at stake or something like that. And so sometimes I'll try to beat her to the punch. I'll try to, you know, soften the blow and I'll say, Hallie, I love you, stop doing that. And she still cries, you know, nothing, nothing can solve it, you know, but she's just, I have to try to soften this blow to protect her tiny little heart that has me wrapped around her finger, you know? And Paul's doing something similar here. He's, he's going to rebuke them, yes, but he softens the blow to save them from any sort of unnecessary despair. And second, I think he's reminding them of the values they profess to hold, or at least at one time professed. He's saying, you guys say you're Christians, right? You're brothers, is that, is that true? Yes, okay, great. I'm gonna treat you as brothers then, which means that y'all will ultimately submit to the authority of Christ and that you will receive my correction. Because if the Corinthians are indeed Christians, they will submit to this capital A apostle Paul's authority. Since Paul has been put in authority over churches like the Corinthian church by Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, they will repent of their errors if they are truly brothers. That's what's packed into and implied by this word brothers. So with that in mind, I just have to say one one last thing. I promise we won't be here forever. (laughs) As Paul calls the Corinthians, his brothers, to repent, he understands that one of the purposes of the church, that God uses his church as a means of sanctifying us sanctifying its members and drawing us to repentance. That's one of the functions of the church. This is why we need each other. This is why we need community. You need people like Paul to come in and say, whoa, brother, sister, please stop what you're doing. I love you. Stop what you're doing. You need to repent. Turn from that. That's not good. That's, that's harming you. That's harming your family. That's harming the people around you. Repent and turn from this behavior. But unfortunately, this is a very uncommon tendency in our little, this little evangelical culture of niceness that's crept into the church over the last few decades. It's sort of, you know, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Forgetting that sometimes the nicest thing you can do for a person is to warn them of their sin, to to warn them of this cancer that is destroying their life. Sometimes it's very hateful to say nothing at all. 
How else can we fulfill the commands given to the church like in James 5, 19 through 20? It says, my, notice this word, brothers. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Or Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. It's that simple. In Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. So notice every one of these texts emphasizes this word brother and sisters. And notice that brothers and sisters, we are commanded explicitly to do the very thing that Paul is doing for the Corinthians as this act of love for our brothers and sisters. So let me just say it this way. If you live by this sort of general rule that when a brother or sister in Christ does something against you or offends you or you see them caught in some sort of transgression and your tendency is just to avoid them or to run from any sort of confrontation or to gossip or you just stop talking about them at all, you say it's no big deal but you harbor bitterness in your heart you think of yourself as better than them. You puff yourself up as if you're more mature. Can you believe that guy? <laughs> Good thing I'm not like him. Ooh. Or maybe on the flip side, when someone comes to you and rebukes you or calls you out for doing something that's sin, do you just put your fingers in your ears and run away from the conflict? You stop talking to them. You say, oh, they're arrogant. That's a toxic person. Stay away from them. Can you believe that guy? Good thing I'm not like him. Is that how you respond to this sort of rebuke? If either of those are you, you are walking in sin. You're treating your brothers and sisters not as brothers and sisters, but rather as enemies, and that's sin. You are neglecting the commands of Scripture, and you need to repent. And Paul here gives us this great example. He doesn't avoid the conversation. He doesn't gossip. He doesn't puff himself up. He doesn't puff himself up as he watches his brothers and sisters harming himself. Rather, in love, he warns them that they're living in such a way that will cause them and others around them harm and already has. And he shows us by example that we shouldn't be so anxious about doing the same with one another. So now, having said all of that, <laughs> from the word brothers, okay, let's continue. But I, brothers, could, now look at that word could. I've got six things I need to say about the word could. I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that to you. We got through the hardest part. We, it'll go smooth sailing from here on out. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, in our text last week, Paul described these two different types of people. You have spiritual people, and then you have natural people or what he calls here people of the flesh. And so let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. This is just last week. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, especially not the natural person. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. 
So the natural person, according to Paul, this person of the flesh is someone who rejects the things of the spirit of God. He rejects the word of God because it sounds foolish to him. He thinks that it's beneath him. It's kind of like Jared Lawson saying that baseball is boring. Like it's beneath him. And really, Jared just doesn't understand the things of God. (laughs) And then on the other side, you have the spiritual person. The spiritual person embraces the word of God rather than calling it foolishness. And he rightly understands that though the world calls the Christian faith foolish and the world claims to be wise, the world cannot judge the faith rightly because they cannot understand true wisdom being the word of God. Therefore, the natural person tends to push away, push up against, reject, not like what Paul's message is saying. They try to move away from it while the spiritual person embraces it, continues to come to the message of the cross, to the message of the gospel again and again and again. So that was last week, and Paul now does something very clever in our text this morning. He points back to when he first met the Corinthians. He lived with them for about 18 months, if you know your church history very well, and he reminds them of just how worldly they really are or really were when he met them. How even after they accepted the gospel, they still pushed back against it like natural people. They still, oh, they had a lot of trouble with the gospel because they still just pushed against it. In a lot of ways, they still felt like it was foolish. It was hard for them to sort of shake their old selves. Old habits die hard. It says, but I, brothers, when I met you, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. They were just little baby Christians. Still influenced by the culture of Corinth, which, by the way, filled with idolatry, sexual immorality, obsessed with status, and proving how awesome you are and how much more awesome you are than your neighbor, seeking glory for themselves, considering themselves more highly than they ought. They had just begun to put these sort of ideas, these sort of passions and pursuits to death when Paul last saw them. And the Corinthians Corinthians would probably agree with Paul at this point. They would say, oh, yeah, we were, we were crazy back then. We were just little babies. We were just little infant Christians. I remember that well, Paul. We were infants just getting started. But you've been gone a while, Paul. You haven't seen us in a while. And, man, you wouldn't believe how spiritual we are now, how much we've grown, how much we've progressed. It's amazing. Because the Corinthians see themselves as these incredibly enlightened, smart, super wise, super Christians. They're doing all these cool things. They're giving these speeches and about mysterious revelations and they're speaking in tongues and they're claiming to have all this wisdom and knowledge and everybody's got a prophecy that they want to share. And because they were such spiritual people in their own minds, they actually found Paul's message to just be a little too elementary for them. It wasn't as eloquent and entertaining as relevant as other, other teachers. They want eloquent wisdom. They want relevance and Paul's not giving it to them And that's what Paul's already mentioned. In 1 Corinthians 1, 17, he said, these are my words in italics, I'm summarizing there, or not italics, in brackets, is that what we call that? English, not for me. For Christ sent me to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 21, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world, this thing that the Corinthians are craving? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its little worldly wisdom. 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So worldly wisdom never saved anybody. What the world calls foolish is actually what saves. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2 and 4 through 5, says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, this sounds familiar, when I came to you, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In other words, Paul's not giving them what they're after. They're seeking wisdom, and that's just simply not what he is giving them. They want these long, lengthy orations that sound really wise and relevant, but they actually lack substance. And so it's like when you hear preachers do this thing today, Just so you know, I'm about to do an impression, okay? I love to do an impression, but I don't want you to take anything I'm about to say seriously, (laughs) okay? This is gonna be an impression of sort of the closest thing that we come to to what the Corinthians are after. So just imagine that I just got done talking to you for 20 minutes about CrossFit, and I'm wearing a leather jacket, and I've got some Nike high tops on, and I look really cool, and I've got a handheld mic, because all of these preachers, that's what they always have, this cool handheld mic, they're like, man. And they just, there's a lot of spiritual words, there's a lot of talking, but they don't really Really say anything. It sounds powerful, sounds spiritual, but there's nothing said. So let me let me get into character, okay? It's <clears throat> Mike. Church. Do you ever stop to think and remember? <laughs> I know. Amen. You know what I'm saying, church. Do you remember? Because when we remember, we recenter. I know, amen. (laughs) How many times have you forgotten the center? God, he doesn't forget the center. No, no. God doesn't forget the center. So why would you? Why would you? That's why God remembers. And that's why, that's why you and me, we're the center. And seen, right? That, thank you. Amen. <laughs> a bunch of words. Sounds powerful. I forgot to mention, there's usually a guy on the keys behind him. You know, that makes the scene really good. That sounds spiritual. And if you say, that's nonsense. You didn't say anything. Oh, man, you just don't get it. You're just not spiritual like me. You just, don't, you just don't get it. Oh, you're there reading your books that dead people wrote? You need to get more spiritual. You need to feel more. And that's what the Corinthians are after. The Corinthians are after that sort of spirituality. And they see Paul as sort of this boring loser. Probably how those guys would see my sermon. And maybe, it's, maybe y'all agree. <laughs> Paul's just sitting there saying, hey, Jesus died for your sins. And they're like, oh, we get it, Paul. Come on, be relevant. Say something more interesting. So they've sort of moved beyond Paul's message. That message that Paul preaches, it's just for little babies. Just for little baby spiritual people. But we've moved on to real stuff. We've moved on to solid food. We've matured beyond Paul's elementary teaching, which is why Paul then says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Now this is actually what they're saying about Paul's message. It's baby stuff, 
He's not giving us solid food. We're mature now. We're done with milk. And again, this is very clever, the way Paul is writing this argument. He says, yeah, you're right. I gave you milk. That is what I gave you because you were infants. You were brand new believers. You were still captivated by the culture around you. So I, like a loving mother, that's sort of the imagery here, I gave you what would make you grow, what would mature you. It would be harmful for a mother to try to give her newborn baby like he was, to give him solid food, like he was ready for it when he was not. Because what a baby needs to grow is milk. He needs to be nourished by milk. He would have loved for them to have already been mature when he left Corinth, for them to be able to handle solid food. So Paul's point with this metaphor of solid food versus milk isn't necessarily the content of his message, but rather it's a comment about their maturity. The gospel is milk for the infant, and it's solid food for the mature. But the gospel doesn't change, it's the same. And had they been more mature, he would have given them solid food. But the problem is they were incredibly immature. And so he gave them what they, as spiritual infants, needed to grow, milk, the gospel. But that's not what the Corinthians think at all. They're certain that they are far more mature than what Paul has, Paul's evaluation of them. No, they're more mature than that. They've actually moved on to solid food. They left Paul's message because this milk, this baby stuff, it's behind them. And so Paul's response is, you are not mature like you think. You weren't when I first met you, so I preached the gospel to you. Now you want to call my message, the message of the cross, of the gospel, you want to call that milk. Yes, You are absolutely right. My message is milk and it nourishes infants. But here's the problem. You're finding nourishment elsewhere. You're going elsewhere for nourishment and you're malnourished and your growth has been stunted. The solid food that you found in, the so-called solid food you found in more eloquent teachers isn't nourishing you. Therefore, you are still infants. Which is why he adds, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. When I met you, you were of the flesh. You were captivated by sinful desires. You pushed back against the wisdom of God like natural people do. And then you embraced the gospel, but you were still captivated in many areas of your life by your sin. And so I did what a good mother would do. I fed you what you needed to grow. I gave you milk, what would nourish your Christian life. But you, it's clear, have not been drinking it at all. You found nourishment elsewhere. Those who are mature can actually handle solid food, but you're still not mature. You're malnourished. You're still of the flesh, which tells me you need to drink more gospel and less of this eloquent wisdom you're so fond of, less of this stuff that you're calling solid food. You need more of the things of the spirit rather than drinking in the things of the wisdom of the world. Now, I have to mention something here. There are some Bible readers, that's the highest title I give them, who read way too much into what Paul is saying here when he tells the Corinthians that they are still of the flesh. In particular, I'm talking about this idea you may have heard of called uh, carnal Christians. They're carnal Christians is this idea. So they they read that Paul calls these people, these Corinthians, he calls them brothers, and thinking that because Paul calls them brothers, it's a guarantee that these people are writing, that he's writing to are actually Christians. They say, look, Paul calls them brothers, therefore they are Christians, whether they repent of the stuff that he's warning them about or not. And then they read here, 
that these Christians are still of the flesh. And then these Bible readers believe that means that there's such a thing as perpetually unrepentant Christians. That thing exists, and they call it carnal Christians. So I say, look, these people are Christians. According to Paul, he calls them brothers, and yet they're doing all these sinful things. They're still of the flesh, he says. Therefore, there is such a thing as Christians who can live without repentance. They can look no different than unbelievers and yet still be Christians. People can, therefore, they can pray a prayer when they're five and say, I hereby accept Jesus as Lord, and that's sort of their get-out-of-hell-free card, but with no repentance, with no repentance, they can continue in their sin and yet still be saved because of that profession of faith. And that's what these people say, okay? There, I studied the Bible. That's sort of how they conclude. But that's obviously not what Paul's saying here. Not at all, because he's going to command the Corinthians for 13 chapters to repent of their fleshliness. Again, Paul's just treating them like brothers, but he nor anyone else in the position is, is in the position to definitively say that these individuals are Christians without a doubt. He's looking for evidence. He's watching and waiting for evidence that they are indeed Christians. He's looking for them to repent, but if they don't, that's a pretty clear sign that they're not. That's the point of this letter to the Corinthians. Repent or that's not great. So the point of this text is not to define a certain class of Christian called a carnal Christian who disobeys Christ with no amount of repentance. In fact, Jesus shares his take on people who make a profession of faith but then continue in unrepentance. In Matthew chapter seven, verse 21 through 23, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, who make this profession of faith, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who's the one that does? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you people who continually disobey the commands of God, who continually live in unrepentance. So yes, there might be Christians, and we all do this. There may be Christians who engage in unrepentant sin. But if the Spirit dwells within a man, he will repent. He will be sanctified and will, by God's grace, turn from his sin. But the Corinthians are trying to live as Christians while not letting go of their sin while not letting go of their unchristian worldview or their unchristian presuppositions. They're trying to hold on and stay on this side where the natural people are while pretending to, to play over here in the spiritual realm, which means that they're letting their culture, which is obsessed with status and proving how wise and awesome you are, they're letting that ultimately serve as their authority. And they're only embracing the gospel in places it will advance their status and how wise people think they are. That is their God, their status. And so that is Paul's rebuke of the Corinthians here. He says, you are what you eat, and you're obviously not feeding on the gospel. They've ultimately gone to some other source to find nourishment other than the message Paul proclaimed, and it stunted their spiritual growth. Now, the Corinthians would obviously take issue with this, right? They'd obviously disagree. You know, can you believe this guy, Paul the milkman? trying to tell us that we're 
immature, that we're unspiritual? Can you believe this guy? What is he talking about? What evidence do you have, Paul? And it's like he can hear that that's what they're going to say. He, under, he anticipates their defense because he says, verse 3b, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Have you not proved my point by the jealousy and strife that's among you? The proof's in the pudding, he says. Evidently, there is jealousy and strife among the Corinthians, meaning there's division, there's this infighting as a result of all these people trying to, trying to jockeying for, for status and sort of self-centeredness and self-glorification. And so we know this because Paul's already brought it up uh, already, and he'll actually have to bring it up again later in the letter. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, he says, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. I don't know who Chloe is. Maybe she's like, a, she's like the church, church lady who's like, they're not being good. But it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. There's quarreling among them. And then later in chapter 11, he'll say, verses 18 through 19, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. This is a funny joke that he's telling. I love this. I like it when biblical authors are making little jokes. He says, I hear that there's divisions among you, but I believe it in part, for there must be factions or divisions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. He says, I heard that there's divisions among you. There obviously is between the faithful and the unfaithful. Burn. I think that's great. I think that's pretty good, Paul. So though the Corinthians claim to have all this wisdom and they claim to have all this knowledge and they believe themselves to be very enlightened and spiritual people, Paul's saying that their actions speak louder than words. And this jealousy and strife that's prevalent among them are clear evidences that they are still so immature. They're still little infants. That their unchristian culture is actually the one nourishing their supposed faith rather than God's word because they are pushing away from and trying to move beyond the message that Paul has proclaimed. And so just listen to how James describes the seriousness of this sort of jealousy and strife. In James 3, verse 13 through 17, he says, who is wise, who's actually wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Meaning, don't go around saying you're wise when bitterness and jealousy and strife and selfish ambition exist. You're a liar if you're saying you're wise and you've got that stuff going on. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So James says, you want to know what true wisdom looks like? It looks like meek, humble obedience to God's word, this quiet obedience to what God has commanded. True wisdom creates peace, not divisions. Not rivalries, not the sort of, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos, so I'm better than you. Well, I actually follow Christ himself, so I'm better than both of you. Not these sort of rivalries or divisions that's being reported among the Corinthians. That's not wisdom from the spirit. That's earthly, fleshly, as Paul would say, unspiritual and demonic. And so if that's the wisdom that's, that's driving you, you'll have jealousy and strife among you. There will be disorder, every vile practice, and the Corinthians certainly check 
all of the boxes, right? It's like vile practice bingo in Corinth. There's a dude sleeping with a stepmom, which is weird. He's, uh, there's guys going to temple prostitutes. There's people getting drunk on communion wine. People even denying a bodily resurrection. Check, check, check. Bingo. So Paul's point is that clearly the so-called solid food these Corinthians are being nourished by is not from the spirit, but rather from the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 26, Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Let's see how many of the Corinthians, this is another bingo game. Sexual immorality, yep. Impurity, yes. Sensuality, yes. Idolatry, yes. Sorcery, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. That's certainly Ephesus, but that's not... The Corinthians. So gold star. Good job, Corinthians. Oh, uh, enmity, yeah. Strife, yes. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. All of those present in Corinth. It says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit, when you're driven by the spirit, that's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions, with its pursuits, with its desires, the things that the Corinthians are all after. He says the person who is in Christ has crucified that. It's dead. It's in the past. It's gone. It's been taken care of. If we live by the Spirit, or at least claim we do, Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's walk as if we live by the Spirit rather than if we're driven by the flesh. So they're operating as these people that are being driven by the flesh rather than the Spirit. Their actions are speaking louder than their words. They're many, many eloquent words, and their flesh seems to be doing the driving, though they claim to be spiritual people, which is why, or at least what Paul means when he adds that they're behaving only in a human way. What he means is that humans post-fall are broken, incapable of worshiping God, of being spiritual, of anything. Apart from God, we can do nothing apart from God, apart from the spirit, the indwelling of the spirit. Without the spirit, we are simply vessels of wrath, little sin factories that produce things like jealousy and strife. So Paul's hope is that the Corinthians will repent and in their repentance will demonstrate that they are in fact being driven by the Spirit. That's why he calls them brothers. They say they've received the Spirit, but they're not walking in step with the Spirit. They're living as humans alone, humans without the Spirit. Being human is not the problem, it's that they're behaving as if they are merely humans, as we'll say in our text next week. Like they're still incapable of righteousness, incapable of responding to and rejoicing in the message of the cross, and still incapable of producing good works. It's like they have this fountain of life and nourishment within them, within them and they've turned off the tap. And they're going to these synthetic substitutes. And so Paul, in love, this morning, warns his brothers of their malnourished state. And will, for the next 13 chapters, plead with them to repent. And that's where our text ends this morning. That's where it ends, on a nice high note. (laughs) And now my job is to somehow apply that to us, somehow apply this passage to us. And I think Paul's question for the Corinthians, as well as for us, is very, very 
Simple. Three words. Four words. <laughs> Math, English. I'm not good at a lot of stuff. Who is nourishing you? Who is nourishing you? And there's really two possible answers. The flesh or the spirit. The flesh or the spirit. And here's what Paul does for the Corinthians. kind of spells it out for them. A great way to diagnose this is to look at how you act. Look at how you behave. You want to know how, what's nourishing you? Who is nourishing you? Look at what flows out of you. Is there jealousy and strife among you? Now let's play this game a little closer to home. Is there anyone at Parkway that you actively avoid? They said something the wrong way to you one time or, or they actually sinned against you or they didn't include you in something or you're just frustrated by the general way that they carry themselves? Is there someone here at Parkway that you avoid? Guess what? The Spirit did not tell you to avoid them. The Spirit tells you to forgive them, to lovingly point out their fault. If you're avoiding them and you're thinking, this is a, good, a great way to handle this. This is the best way to do this. You are not being led by the Spirit. You're being nourished not by the Spirit, but by your flesh and your nurturing sin, behaving only in a human way. Are there brothers and sisters here that you think are beneath you? You're on a different spiritual level. You kind of roll your eyes at them, but they just don't get it like I do. I'm up here, get on my level. So let's just use some real life examples. People wearing masks. What do you think of your brothers and sisters who aren't wearing masks? And the like, people without masks, what do you think of your brothers and sisters who are wearing masks? Or how about this one? Families at home school. What do you think of your brothers and sisters whose kids are in public school? <gasps> public school. And vice versa, kids who don't homeschool or parents who don't homeschool, what do you think of parents who do and are really passionate about homeschooling? You see, the flesh fosters these divisions, this jealousy, this strife among us. But the Spirit says in these matters, there's absolute freedom. There's freedom. How do you know what the Spirit says? Whatever God's word commands. And that's it. No more, no less. God's not commanded masks or no masks. He's not commanded homeschool or public school. If you feel a tension between you and some other group in this church, are you not drinking in the flesh rather than the word of God? Are you not behaving in a human way? It's okay to have strong opinions. It's okay to have strong opinions. It's okay to have a nice, rigorous debate, but you cross a line when you start canonizing your opinions and preferences. You start spreading disunity when you begin to elevate your opinions, your preferences to commands that you would condemn others over. We like to roll our eyes at the Corinthians for being so captivated by the ways of their culture and how they're still behaving in all these fleshly ways and yet how many divisions are there between us alone in this room? But not only are the, the Corinthians divided, they're also arrogant, they're immature, but they're actually boasting, going around boasting about how mature they are. How many of us are spiritually immature and yet we're trying to cover it up with all these external things that we do? All these podcasts or what, what church we're a part of. Because you're a part of this church, we, we care about doctrine. Everybody else is stupid. The Corinthians are saying things like, I'm mature because I follow Apollos. I subscribe to this eloquent teacher. All the while, they're getting drunk off communion wine 
They're trying to flex their status as if it somehow correlates to Christian maturity. So let me just say, many of us in this room are spiritually immature, but man, you're ready to tell everybody your resume. Just ready, just, just ask me about what church I used to work, work for and how I homeschool my kids or what curriculum I use. You know, I use the quadrivium because I'm a good mom or whatever. And there's all of these little things that we point to. This is why I'm a great Christian. These are the TV shows I don't watch and these are the things that I, I don't associate with. And all of these really are just this empty 1969 Chevelle spiritual trinket that you slap in front of people to try to convince you and them that you're awesome. All the while, your gears are grinding, and we can hear it. You're malnourished. You're arrogant. You're prideful. You're a gossip. You're a liar. You avoid confrontation. You avoid what the Bible commands you to do for your brothers and sisters. You avoid, you don't love your brothers and sisters. You treat them as enemies. On and on we could go. And all these behaviors are evidence that we are going to the wrong source for nourishment. We're not drinking what we need to grow, but rather we're drinking poison. We're looking to the flesh for life rather than the spirit and the word of Christ. And so that's our question for today. Who is nourishing you? In a spiritual sense, you are what you eat. And so what are you spending each and every day drinking in? The word of God or the wisdom of men? The spirit or the flesh? And now with all that being said, what better way than to follow this text than to be literally and spiritually nourished by the body and blood of Christ our Savior as we partake of communion together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would uh, just teach us about our hearts, that we would recognize and be quick to admit our many sins. Lord, we need your grace. We've always needed your grace. I pray that we wouldn't forget it. Lord, I pray that we would uh, not try to keep score amongst ourselves, but rather that we would uh, look to Christ, that we would not act as if we were trying to work our way to, to earning some sort of status, but recognize that Christ has already given us perfect status. Pray that we would rejoice in that this morning as we partake of communion, this gracious gift that you've given us to nourish our minds and our bodies. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.